Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we're continuing our series on famous people in the Bible you never heard of with the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Enjoy. Well, today we're, gonna, we're continuing the, uh, the series called Famous People You've Never Heard Of. And uh, today, the, the people that you've never heard of actually have no names, so, or, or they may have names, they may have names, but they're not, we're not given the names. So uh, we're going to take a look at a group of people that are mentioned in a parable that Jesus told. Now, we know when Jesus told parables, they were stories that he would say that were intended to make a point. So he never would name names in a parable, obviously, because the story is about the point, the story is not about the people. But we're going to take a look at that in comparison to a woman who did have a name. It's just she's not named. And that is the mother of James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee. So we're going to take a look at the, the parallel between the parable and, uh, and, and what happened with, uh, with James and John and their mother. So to kind of get us started, I thought we would have a very light opening discussion And if you take a look at it, I've got it written down in your outline. Much has been made in the news lately about the higher education scandal with wealthy families who paid exorbitant amounts of money to allegedly buy their children's way into top universities and colleges. Is there anybody here that's not familiar with this this particular issue going on? So as we have all read about it probably and thought about it, what do you think about it? Where do your thoughts take you? on this particular issue? Lack of surprise. Pardon? Lack of surprise. Uh, Lack of surprise, meaning? It's not very shocking. This is not shocking. This is not a surprise at all. Okay. It's people with money using their money to create advantages for themselves and their children. Okay. It was capitalism. Yeah, thank you for that non-cynical approach to this whole thing. (laughs) All right, yeah. Ted, Ted. the, The cheating... Is, is something of a surprise, but for hundreds of years, the wealthy have been funding chairs for their wealthy children at Harvard and Yale, and it's been going on forever. But it just needs to be more open. Okay. So, so far, the two opinions that I'm hearing are more about the people who were giving the money or you know, paying the money. I'm not hearing much. Do you have sympathy for the colleges themselves or the universities? Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty close. Yeah. All right. Yeah, Mary Jo. I just thought it was just so sad because when they interview the children of the wealthy, they're like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not, may not go to class. I don't know. Can you think of those kids that worked so hard and didn't make it yeah. because their parents didn't have the money. Yeah. It's just a shame. Okay, yeah. So there's, there is some sympathy there for that. Yeah, yeah. Really. I would hate to be a president of one of those universities because I think fundraising would become a lot more difficult. It could be. It could be. With more scrutiny kind of comes the... Uh, Sometimes a reluctance then to uh, to give money to it. Yeah. Sure. I think it's an extension of the helicoptering parents, how they're, they're so hovering, you know, uh, over their kids. Mm-hmm. I have a friend that was a. This has been years ago. She taught high school uh, Spanish, and she said it's unbelievable the amount of parents that want the grades changed 
you know, mm -hmm. that was probably 20 years ago, and she was saying how they would, you know, well, this is an elective. It doesn't matter. It's going to hurt their, their college. College you know, attempt, like, yeah. I'm sorry, but I'm not changing yeah. Not changing their grade. Yeah, some of that pressure I know came into play, uh, came into being when they instituted um, no, what was it, no play, no, no pass, no play, yeah. And that became a pressure too for athletically minded kids who weren't so academically driven, but they were very athletically gifted. The college professors were saying in the last 10 years, they'd never seen this before, but parents calling them instead of the kids coming to them on their office hours yeah. talking to them, the, the parents are now calling sure. instead of the kids. Sure. You know? So it tells you there's a lot of anxiety in the world of parenting today with respect to getting your kids um, uh, to achieve. Yeah. To me, it's more the parents' ego. I mean, it's the parents. I don't know if those kids have as big a problem with whether they go to school with the parents. Can be. It can be. Again, anxiety causes us to do a lot of weird things, doesn't it? Yeah. So I worked in the athletic department of a large university. Oh, you did? And then in the administration. Uh huh. Department. Yeah. And a lot of it is just former graduates mm -hmm. that give, give their families, their members, sure. favor. Right. So it's not necessarily always money. No, it's sometimes the legacy kinds of things. If your dad or mom went there and that sort of thing, I, I've often wondered if that wasn't somehow still related to fundraising. And, and those kinds of things it could be. But again, some of us, I, I think of myself, for example, I went to Concordia's. So Concordia's didn't really have that issue because they're all small schools. But sometimes you, you're, you're cut a little slack because of who your dad is, all right? Your dad's a pastor, and so we know that that's what you're going to be someday. So, you know, you don't know. You, that part you don't know. But, um, yeah, Phil, one more. Uh, I feel uh, sympathy or empathy, whichever one, uh, for, I feel sad for the, for the kids. Sad for the yeah. kids. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, there's, yes. always, there's already this pressure to, for everyone to go to college, yeah. which that may not necessarily be built for everyone. That's and correct. I, I, I see this story as just a symptom of, a, of the larger issue of the rising costs of higher education in That's general. Right. I mean, and, and people going to college who, frankly, you know, would be better suited pursuing some other career other than going to college, but they were they were pressured by society or their parents to go into college. My dad, sure. my dad told me, I don't care if you get a degree in shoveling manure. He didn't really use manure, but <laughs> you're, you're to get a degree. And, you know, I'm thankful for him and for my parents to, for putting me through college and, yeah. and, and thankfully not getting any college debt. Yeah. But I, I just see a lot of students who are coming fresh out of college with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. In debt. Right. And, and the, this story about uh, the, the wealthy just paying on top of that premium right. even more money Sure. Artificially driving up the price even more sure. is, is just another symptom of this issue. Yeah. I find for myself that I have mixed, mixed emotions with respect to the kids. Because on the one, I mean, it's one thing if, I think if you go along with your parents and you get your photo ID that says you're a member of the soccer team and you never played any soccer in your life, well, surely then the kid, the kid would know. I mean, that's, that, it's not like you could just say, well, I didn't know. But the other part of it is, is that I know how hard it is in college. And any of us that have been to college, you have to work your buns off. It, it, okay, maybe you got in on somebody else's dime or somebody else's name or somebody else's ticket. Maybe you did. But you got to work 
to, you have to really manage yourself, your time, your academics, your social life. You have to, you have to put all that together in a very proactive way. And I would venture to guess that I think the current average is 40% of college freshmen that enter into four-year schools fail. They're, they're not, they don't come back. And that's, that isn't just because, oh, they got in on an, on an easy, uh, easy dime. That was because there were other things going on. And sometimes the failure to manage yourself is a big chunk of that. It's not just academic. So I have some feelings about that, but kind of mixed. I feel kind of bad for the kids, particularly the ones who have a lot of notoriety now. You know, how do you stay at that school? You know, how do you do that? And then how do you ever feel like that you could accomplish this on your own without having some sort of prop that got you in and then would even keep you there? Okay, one more. Yeah. Just one thing about the 40%. Yeah. Um, you have to understand. This is, is it still 40%? Well, I don't know. Actually, the statistics number are I saw. only 30% of the kids that graduate from high school within six years will have a diploma, will have a college degree in Texas. I've been teaching in Texas for 26 years. Every year we lower our standards. Okay. And do you know so why? So some of it's that then too. Yeah. Well, do you know why we lower our standards? There are different reasons for it. Because we can't have too many failures. We actually got in trouble in yeah. science recently because yeah. we had too many failures. There's different reasons for it. Yeah. So what have we done? We're going to, I mean, since I've been teaching, all I see us do is less, less, less. Yeah. Um, that's just hurting the state when you try to go and, and sure. when you are trying to go to schools outside the state of Texas, yeah. that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Now, the other piece to it is, I think, that, and Phil pointed this out, not everybody is cut out for four-year school, okay? Not everybody is, and I think that's one of the things that we come to realize. My wife tutors, as many of you know, over in Fort Worth, and I do my share of work with, uh, with uh, college kids, and one of the things we've noticed is that you can get a really good education at a two-year school. And really, actually, if you are looking to uh, have skills that you actually can use in life, you can get real excellent sk skills out of a, uh, a two-year school. And then if you needed to, you could transfer to the, to the four-year school. And it's easier to get in as a transfer than it is to get in as a, uh, as a freshman if you have to be in that top whatever percent. So there's something to be said for that in terms of recognizing that. And, uh, you know, maybe that's one of the lessons that we get out of this whole thing uh, is to be more mindful of, of, of how that kid is wired and maybe what kind of educational experience is the best for that kid. Okay, well, lots of opinions about this. This is one of those no shortage of opinions that we all have. But I, but I sense that there is a kind of indignance about this, kind of we're offended by this in some way, right? So it touches something deep inside of us regardless of who it is that we're focused on, whether we're looking at the cost of university education, or we're talking about the kids, we're talking about the parents, whoever it is. And so I want you to hang on to that feeling as we look at the lesson for today and see if you can place yourself not so much in the, what we just talked about, but place yourself in the stories as they present themselves. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew 20, 1 to 28. Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples and he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The vineyard was a common uh, setting that Jesus often referred to in his parables. And the reason for that, again, we remember that Jesus's initial mission was to preach and teach to whom? To the Jewish people, right? That, to, that was his primary, his primary group. Now, it wasn't exclusive to that because there were many unbelievers. There were many people that were Gentiles who also came to know Jesus, were, were drawn to him and to his ministry, and he welcomed them, all right? But the primary focus initially was to, uh, to be uh, among the Jewish people. And so when he uses the, the metaphor of the vineyard in his parables, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He was referring to the house of Israel. And the example there is Isaiah 5 verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the lament of the the prophets, especially Isaiah in the Old Testament, was that God had planted this beautiful uh, vineyard in which he was expected to find uh, a rich harvest of righteousness and of justice and of treating people fairly and frankly being nice to each other, right? And yet the prophets continued to find what? That there was favoritism going on and there was injustice and there were people that were uh, being mean to each other uh, all in the name of their religion. So in the parable... The, the master of the, of the vineyard, he goes out and he starts hiring people. And so right away in the very first part of the morning, he hires this group of guys that are standing around for a denarius. Now, a denarius is simply whatever was the day's wage, right? So it's not really uh, given to us in terms of a specific amount. It was just whatever the agreed upon uh, laborers would have worked for that, for, that, uh, day, for that wage, then they would have said, okay, that's what we will work for. So the way the parable works is about every three hours, the master goes out and does what? He gets some more guys. So, you know, it's, and the message there is, is that this is a large harvest that's need, that is available, and I need to have more workers. And so every three hours, I'm going to go out and I'm going to hire more and more because more and more is needed. So one of the notes I have down here at the bottom on uh, page, uh, page eight, that point D there, the continuous need for those who would work in the kingdom and then here's just a little, a little reality check for a lot of us that are in church work. Worker shortages in professional church work circles are triggering anxiety as well as creating more opportunities for lay involvement. Have you heard of this? That there is actually, if you, if you follow any of, the, uh, any of the information that comes out of St. Louis, at least in Lutheran Church, Missouri, Senate circles, right? 
is that the number of pastors, uh, using pastors as the example, the number of pastors that are, that are making their way educationally through the seminaries is not keeping up with the number of aging pastors who are likely to retire in the next five to 10 years. And so what's happening is that's creating a supply and demand sort of crunch for, uh, for a lot of people. The anxiety is mostly currently located in smaller churches. Can you get some sense of why that would be? Yeah, because a lot of the smaller churches, especially the ones that are very tiny, worshiping under 100 uh, people, aren't necessarily financially able to support uh, the costs and benefits and all the stuff that goes along with full-time pastors. So that's creating some, some anxiousness about that. But interestingly enough, it's also creating some alternative opportunities for lay people to get involved in actually professional ministry. Uh, one example is what's called uh, SMP, which is Specific Ministry Pastor. And what that means is, is that a, uh, a layman in... Uh, in any Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, who felt maybe uh, called in some sense or, or interested in becoming a pastor could actually go through a process by which he could become a, a, an ordained pastor in that congregation and then would remain in that congregation even though he might have an outside job or might have some other means of support. And, and 20 years ago, that didn't exist. So there are some creative uh, things happening with respect to, um, with respect in, in terms of pastor world. I'm not sure about teacher world. Is anybody familiar with, in LCMS, the, uh, the teachers, the number of teachers available that are going through our schools? Do you know, Barbara? Going down, still going down. Okay, so there's, there's a little bit of a, of a uh, you know, imbalance there in terms of the number of people that are going through professional training for church work as opposed to the need that's there. Okay? So anyway, that's kind of an interesting aspect of this. All right, so let's see what happens in the story. He says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now already you can sense the tension point in the parable, can you not? Right? Because we almost get the feeling that by doing it that way, the master is somehow setting up a very likely protest that's about to occur. And on, in some sense, you wonder if it is not also a test of some kind of their, uh, of their spiritual life. Right? So let's keep going. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Remember, that's the day's wage. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made, us equal, made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day, and the scorching heat. Anybody want to say they relate totally to exactly what? Uh, yeah, that's right. All right. So let's take, let's take a look at that. Did they have a legitimate gripe? You're too afraid to answer that question. I can see that. Oh, okay, Tad. They had an understandable gripe. 
Oh, understandable gripe. Yes, as opposed to legitimate. All right, what's the what's what's understandable about it? They saw people getting more for less work. Understandably, they presumed that they might benefit their money. So, even though they had agreed to work for that amount, they thought they could come out. And we're quite content with that until when? <laughs> until they saw what? Yeah, until they saw some advantage that was going to somebody else, even though they looked at the amount of work that they had done and certainly the burden and the sacrifice that they had suffered as a result of that, right? I mean, it wasn't just the length of the day that they had, but the scorching heat. So probably this took place out in West Texas somewhere. Uh, <laughs> we would assume that, yeah, all right, or East Texas, maybe. And so that was part of it for them, all right? So we would, we would sort of say, I could relate to that. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you were part of the original group that started something, like a charter member of something? How many of you have ever been a charter member of something? Okay, so we have a few people that would admit to that. Okay, very good. And so when you're the charter member of something or the original of something, that feels pretty good, doesn't it? Well, sure. I mean, and it ought to, right? It ought to. There's, there's a certain amount of uh, joy that goes into starting something. Like, for example, chartering a church. There are people that uh, we all probably know, people that were in on the ground floor, so to speak, of beginning a, uh, a church. In, in LCMS world, a lot of times that starts out as a Bible study group, for example. And a Bible study group is located in somebody's house. Um, that's how uh, when, when my dad first got into ministry way back in 1954... In Houston, that's what it was. The mission, uh, the mission department from the district called him to be a mission planter. He went, and, and all there was was a, uh, a five-acre spot of land on the west side of Houston with swamps and snakes and tall pine trees and a house. And the house was the parsonage, and it was also the church. And so I remember as a little kid, uh, we had church like on a Sunday morning, there would be people come to church at the house in the living room. And that meant on Saturday, we spent the whole day cleaning the house to uh, make sure that it would look nice for when the church people came and then we'd have church. And so then from there, more people became a part of that, more people became a part of that. And then it eventually St. Andrew Lutheran Church was born and now they have a building and all those kinds of things. All right. So, you know, it's, it's a great thing to be part of something that is chartered. All right. And so one of the pressures that sometimes comes when you start something and you're part of the group that got it going and part of the group that made those things happen is what do you do when newcomers come and they want to change things? Or maybe in their effort to do things a little bit differently, they start to step on your toes just a little bit and maybe don't have quite the same high level of respect for all the things that you did or you were a part of in chartering the thing in the first place. And in some sense, that's kind of what's going on here. It's, it is totally, Ted, understandable. It is totally understandable because when we're part of something on the front end and uh, part of originating something, there is some sense, I think, of owning it, right? Yeah. 
And it's, you sort of get the sense of that here too. This is our vineyard and this is our, we, we own it in some sense. And when that happens, it's easy then for a flaw in thinking to enter the picture. And so as I was looking at this, I was thinking, okay, what's the flaw in their thinking? I'm seeing six things, right? Number one, they forgot whose vineyard it was in the first place, right? Easy to do when you're the one who's carrying the bulk or the brunt of the burden of the labor. Number two, they forgot it was due to the generosity of the owner that they could even work in the first place. What were they doing prior to working? You know, and I was standing around. Now, maybe that was kind of a nice thing to do. Of course, you're not, you're not making any money in terms of how you're going to make your living. But uh, what they forgot is that it's a privilege to work in the kingdom. It's easy to forget that. It is a privilege to work in God's kingdom. It is not a right. It may be a, a responsibility that we have as well, Right? But when God calls us to be part of his work, he doesn't have to do that. Does God need us? Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Right? Sometimes we think, oh, you know, God really needs me and boy, that kind of thing. Well, God likes you. He enjoys you. But God doesn't need us in order to accomplish his will and to get his job done. He doesn't need us. In some sense, we need him in a greater way. Number three, they forgot the agreed upon wage at the start. Easy to do when you start comparing what you're receiving to what other people are receiving. Number four, they compared their time spent to the time that the latecomers spent. Again, uh, when we talked in the commandments about coveting, right? That the, the issue of coveting really kind of plays into this a little bit because coveting always begins with me looking at you and comparing what you have to what I have, what you have done to what I have done. And that's, you see, plants the seeds of, wait a minute, it's not quite fair, okay? Oh, fair. How many of you are fairness driven? Let's just enjoy that, right? Let's enjoy that. <laughs> Now, you know, fairness driven often goes along with being firstborn. So how many of you are fairness driven and firstborn? <laughs> ah, now we get more. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the fairness is an issue for a lot of us, right? Now, is it a good issue? Well, I think it's a good issue. How about that? <laughs> well, why is it not a good issue? Well, because we kind of talked about this before. In terms of salvation, I mean, we, if we got what we deserve, we Oh, yeah. So from a fairness perspective, I'm already ahead of the game. Yeah, so from a salvation perspective, yeah, because is it fair that Jesus dies for us and then we go to heaven? I mean, is that really fair? No, that's not fair. So we're happy about that, that fact that, and willing to concede that part. Yes, okay, right. Yeah, you're looking at this. You're looking at the human side. Right? Yes, I was looking at the human side. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So whenever those of you... Whenever those of you that were all about fairness, like it, with your siblings, for example, if you would go to your mother or your father and you would complain about how it's not fair, what, did, what was the response that you got, that loving, compassionate response that you got from your parent about that? I hated hearing that. 
And then now I say it, so it's even worse. I never thought I would become like my mother and father. Now I am, right? Okay. All right, number five. They turn this into an equality issue. Notice that's what they said, is it not? You have what? You have made them equal to us. Now, the equality part is kind of a little tricky here. So what was there equality in terms of the amount of time spent in the work and the, and the, and the burden that was borne with the work as well as even the output of the work? Was there, e- was there equality there? No. The people that had worked all day, their output was far greater, right? Their effort was more. They were more tired, you know, they had borne the heat of the day, the whole thing, right? But that's not what they're talking about here. It's not, the e- that's not, it's not that kind of equality. The equality here, they're talking about in terms of their worth and value. And so the problem, the mistake they made was they were saying on the basis of our work and our effort and our output, you have turned their worth and value to be the same as ours. And what the master is helping them realize is, in terms of worth and value, you're all worth the same. You all are of high value. And how you know that is, I hired you in the first place. That's how I demonstrated to you that there is no favoritism, that it is all the same in terms of the worth, the value, and the fact that you're loved and appreciated by me. And when we turn it into a works thing, and we base our value and worth on how much I did, on how much effort was put into it, how much respect I feel I'm getting back from you. See, then we miss the whole thing. Yeah, Phil. The more that I listen to this co- like this discussion, yeah. the, the more I'm wondering, is, can an, a, an analogy be drawn between the criticisms of millennial gener- the millennial generation and younger generation versus, say, older generations such as baby boomers and whatnot, and, and, the, po- and the point of contention there. So what is your point, Phil? Oh, an observation. Oh, very good. Yeah. Okay. So what? So can you boil it? What do you What do you say? You know, I, the common criticism that I hear from millennial generations and younger generations: Oh, they're so entitled. They're lazy. They They don't do as much. Blah, blah, blah. You hear that from us about you? Uh, I hear that about. Uh, no, I hear that from from multiple points. Not not not. Come on, Phil. Get on a limb here. <laughs> Well, there is. I, I do think you're, I think, I think we can be specific about this. I think there is th- from the older generations, mostly boomers. Okay. There's a few builders now among us still, but, but boomers, um, you know, I think when we do look at millennials and when we do, we do look at the younger generations, we, we say that. Okay. I think we do. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, and there's not to say that there aren't lazy millennials. I mean, there are lazy any, any group of people, really, in general. But, I mean, we also have opportunities now that, that older generations did not have yeah. and may not specifically recognize as opportunities right. in the present day. So yeah. I think there's, there is like a, a, a societal misunderstanding <laughs> between, <laughs> between these two age groups. And just, just remind us again how old you are, Phil, just so we... Uh, I'm 31. Okay, yeah. So your, so your, Phil is kind of in the sort of top end of millennials as millennials are aging, okay? But so my theory on that is everybody reacts to somebody. Everybody reacts to somebody. 
And so if you do some of the, read some of the literature now that's coming out in terms of how Generation Z, which comes after the millennials, the Zs are looking at millennials and saying, they're terrible people and all they want to do is make money. And, and so anyway, we all look at the people before us, don't we? And we say, oh, there's the, I never want to be like those people. I never want to be like those people, right? And the irony, of course, is that eventually you're going to become just like one of those people. So, yeah. And I was going to say, at 31, didn't we all make the same speech? At 31, did we all make the same speech? It's possible. It's possible, but... But when you're on the receiving end of that criticism, it's hard not to think that you're the only one receiving it. So there is some, I mean, I, I do think we probably need to, to kind of be a little bit more mindful, right? Because the other part of it is, is that when, when you have a church full of boomers, and this sort of gets it down to a little bit more specific, if you have a church full of boomers who feel a certain way about millennials and then articulate that in some way, either verbally or facially, the disapproval aspect of that, do you think you're going to see many of those millennials in your church? You might, but it's going to be harder for them to get in, right? So to be mindful of that in the sense that I might have my own opinions, but maybe it'd be better for me not to generalize, that in the same way that I'm going to say, well, all millennials are this way. All Zs are this way. You know, all Xs are this way. Well, you know, there's a lot of people saying all boomers are this way. See? And so then when we do that, we stop seeing that person as a person. And we start seeing them only as the label of the group that they're in. Not good. Not good. Because none of us wants to be lumped in with everybody and saying, well, you know how you are, or how you guys are, right? Okay. Had a hand way at the back. Yes. I, I, what she, her question was, hope I don't goof it up. Do I feel that they were having a more psychological or human response as opposed to a spiritually based response? Response of righteous indignation. Righteous indignation, yes. They're, have, they're not having a righteous, in, this is not a righteous indignation. This is, this is not an indignation of where you look at the injustice that somebody else is suffering and you want to speak to that injustice. This is them looking at themselves and saying, we're getting ripped off because we worked all day and we got what we agreed to work for. But then now these other people, they only work for like three hours and they're getting the same. That's not righteous in the name. I wonder the next day when he goes out to get laborers. <laughs> the next day. <laughs> the next day, how many? <laughs> you know, that's so good. That is so good. Because here's kind of what, one of my sort of dreams in my head, like when I don't have so many part-time jobs that I'm eventually going to do, is I'm going to write a book that has all of the parables in it, and it'll be titled, The Next Day. <laughs> right? Because that, like the story of the prodigal son, what was the next day like, you know? So it's kind of an interesting, interesting thought. All right? And then number six, they allowed resentment to creep into their souls. See, resentment now becomes the soul thing, the, the inner thing that now they're going to have to battle. And that would have been the next day. 
So let's see what happens. Verse 13. Yeah. Uh, the owner, I'm going back to the owner of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard? He has the right to, uh, to do, the, do it the way he wants to do it. Sure. Uh, for the workers, they all had the same opportunity. They all had a job for the day. Right. So uh, if you look at it that way, uh, there I can see the human aspect right. of being resentful, sure. but um, but if you look at it bottom line, mm -hmm. they all had a job for the day. I know, and that amazing. How could they even be ungrateful? How could that even happen? <laughs> I don't know how that would happen. Yeah, it says that's why this is such a powerful story. Okay, so let's see what happens. But he, now the master, replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for one denarius? So there at large is what the point is. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what, what uh, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So now the master he reasserts what we've been talking about, right? That whose, whose vineyard was it in the first place, right? It was his, right? And you agreed with me that this is what you would be paid for the work that you were going to do. So he says, take what belongs to you. What belonged to them legitimately? What they had earned. So they get the wage and he says, go. He says, am I not allowed to do what I want to with what belongs to me? And now we get to the main point, right? Or do you begrudge my generosity, right? Sometimes God's generosity offends us. Let me say that again. Sometimes God's generosity offends us. How? Why? Yeah. Patty. Look at the thief on the cross right next to Jesus. Yes! <laughs> Darn it! Darn it! I spent my whole life being a Christian. And a Lutheran to boot. <laughs> and that darn guy just went to heaven just like that. That's right. He, he lived his life and had a great time and doing whatever he wanted. And he didn't have to deal with church rules. He was probably the youngest in his family anyway. He probably had all that. And look at the life of ruin that he had. And he had fun. He didn't have to be anybody's example. He was, and look what happens at the very end, 11th hour. Jesus says, what, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Man, that guy had it made. I don't know what. Yeah, Peggy. Yeah, but that's that is a that is a hard sell when you're a teenager and all your friends are able to skip church, but you're not able to skip church, right? What a rip that is. But no, I, I mean, from our Christian perspective, from our mature Christian perspective, we would say he missed out on all the spiritual benefits that went along with that life and what a lousy life that probably was. Yes, 
This is why in confirmation class, I never asked this question. That's why. Because when your dad is teaching the class, what are you going to do then, right? But you know, that's that generosity part, right? God shows no favoritism. We're all the same. Now, what, that, what does that mean? We're all his beloved. And granted, if I'm living my life in such a way that I'm constantly running away from him in an intentional way, and we all run away from him in weakness, but if I'm doing it in an intentional way, that is not a good life. That's not my best life. There's very little joy in that life. There's very little, if any, certainty or, or security in that life. And it's a life of deep loneliness, and it's a life in which people are constantly looking for the one thing or the 20 things that will fill the emptiness inside. That is not a good life. But the beauty of it is, is that even if it comes down to your last second, your last breath, God says, hmm, come on in. I was always with you, and you were always with me in faith. Now, how do we know that guy had faith, the thief on the cross? Because he came to faith. How do we know? Remember what he said? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, we're not going to go into some long theological argument about what he meant by that, because Jesus took it as faith, and Jesus said what? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And maybe in that guy's last moment... Maybe he thought to himself, gosh, I missed out my whole life on what it could be like to know this guy and to have him know me. You know, maybe he did. We don't know, right? But anyway, dealing with God's generosity takes some maturity of faith, does it not? All right. Now the next part. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. All right. Now, this is something that takes place in between the two stories for today. So just hang on to that thought, right? Now we go into the next story. Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Okay, you remember sons of Zebedee? Who were they? James and John. And what was their profession prior to uh, professional uh, apostleship? They were fishermen, all right? And we would presume that they became bivocational because we're told in other parts of the Gospels that fishing was still part of what they did. They still owned the boats, and that's how they got across the Sea of Galilee, and they did fishing and, and all those kinds of things still. So what the story is, is that the mother, and she's not named, so she is famous, but we don't know who she is, right? 
she comes up to Jesus and she has this simple request. And what's the request? She's a good Jewish mother, so we know what this is. Or she could have been Lutheran, we don't know, all right? So what is it that, she, what is it that she's requesting? I have two sons, and they are gifted and talented, right? And because they're gifted and talented, I see their potential, and their potential is, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Now, what was her misunderstanding about the kingdom? Earthly kingdom. See, again, they're still laboring under this misconception that Jesus was there to set up an earthly powerful kingdom like it would have been in the old days of the Old Testament of Solomon and David. That's what she's thinking, right? And she's thinking that her sons are better equipped to uh, be in positions of authority than the other 10 rabble that Jesus had somehow picked up in terms of his dis uh, of disciples, right? So that's what she's thinking. Now, is she thinking the best for her kids? If she had had a ton of money <laughs> to give to Jesus in order to secure a higher place for her children at the table of the kingdom, would she have done it? Can we falter for that? And yet we did before. We sure did. We sure did. It's so easy, isn't it? To look at other people and say, oh, ooh, terrible. I can't believe they did that. Oof. If I'd had all that money, I wouldn't have done that. And yet, what? Been a president of the college. What? If Jesus had been a president of the college, maybe he took it. Who knows? I doubt it. He would have. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. Jesus corrects her initially on the nature of the kingdom. And he does that by using the words referencing the cup. See, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? They go, yeah, 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 because we're seeing all the glory. We're seeing you rip it up with the scribes and Pharisees. We're seeing you challenge the status quo. Oh, yes, we will be with you in your glory. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to drink my cup. Because the cup has to do with the cup of suffering. It doesn't have to do with the cup of glory. And that's what references back to those verses that we just read, 17, 18, and 19, in terms of why Jesus really came. And if you're going to follow me, guess what? You can expect the same thing to happen to you as happening to me, including the part about being raised on the third day. That kind of got lost in that, didn't it? But that's a big part of it as well. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 24. When the ten heard it, they were what? Oh, let's see now. Did we talk about indignance a little bit earlier in our class today? Oh, I believe we did. Okay. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why? They were there. They were mad that they didn't have their mothers come to Jesus <laughs> and see if they couldn't work out the same arrangement. So they were mad. Yeah, they were upset. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your what? And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. It shall not be so among you. See, one of the things that Jesus was pointing out is the radical nature of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of the world, if you want to be great and you want to be first, it very often has little to do with serving. At least service in the pure sense of service and not self-serving service, right? Serving in order to look good or serving in order to get my name published in, to, on some building or something. It's it, not that people that do that do it for that reason, but it certainly is tempting to do it for that reason, right? That isn't what it's about in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of God, it's all about who do I serve? And, and greatness then, therefore, and firstness is not something to be aimed for, though it may be something that you receive. It's just that when people are patting you on the back for all the things you do, it's hard to not give in to that temptation that says, this is why I'm doing this, right? It's just really hard. So what Jesus is reminding us of is that the kingdom of the world doesn't operate the way the kingdom of heaven does. That the kingdom of heaven really is all about the idea that, yes, we have not equality in terms of what we do, not in terms of our skill sets, not in terms of, of uh, the output that we um, are able to perform. That, yeah, there's, there's unequalness there. But unequalness there does not determine your equalness in terms of the worth and value that you have to God. When God looks at you, when God looks at me, he doesn't look at status. He doesn't look at upbringing. He doesn't look at your race or gender or, or all those things that we use to, to divide and conquer with each other. He just says, you're my beloved. I love you. And even though you live in a world where all of those divisions take place and people will judge you and people will say things about you based on those things, he says, don't worry about it because I don't. And that's what carries us through. And you see, that's what the workers in, those, in that first parable, that's what they forgot. And sometimes it's easy for us to forget that as well. So application, Jesus cautions his workers to be mindful of the temptation to compare ourselves to others in the way that I just talked about. And then point B, when you allow resentment into your life and feed it, the desire to lord it over will always feel justified. So what's the antidote for that? And this is a great way for us to close. What is the antidote for that? What is the thing that shifts us and moves us back into the place where we need to be? Gratitude for God's grace. And you have to remind yourself of that every single day. You're God's beloved. You belong to him. You're a baptized child of God. You're all those things as a result of God's grace to you and to me. And you go back to the gratitude place for that every day. That's how you keep resentment from taking hold. We're going to feel it from time to time, but that's how you keep it from taking hold. And then uh, as much as you can, celebrate the differences that we have with each other, right? And the fact that some of us have been around a long time doing this and others of us are new to it. And we want to celebrate that and welcome that, not be so protective or, or possessive of it that we think there's not room for everybody else. Okay, good stuff today. It's great to be back with you and uh, look forward to next week. And I have no idea who we'll be talking about next week. So there we go. All right, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together.
We thank you for the way that your word speaks to us in such a powerful and strong way. And so we ask, Lord, as we think about how we're going to use this in our lives this week, um, I would simply pray that you would keep us mindful of, uh, of what you have given for us and done for us in your son, Jesus, and how none of us deserves it or earns it, but we all have the opportunity to benefit from it and use it. Help us to be mindful of that, dear Lord. Watch over us this week. Be with those who are listening to our podcast as well. Uh, bless them and give them that sense of security that comes from knowing you. Be with us until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.